You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This is the Skate Podcast on WEEI.com. Bobby Orr, behind the net, the status and the For the first time in 39 years, the Boston Bruins have won the Stanley Cup. Talking Bruins and NHL. Sure, old-time hockey. Like it is sure. With writer and producer Brian DeFelice. Brian DeFelice is an emerging talent. Bridget Prue. Yeah, he's a little bit on the hot seat. Burn him! And WEEI.com Bruins writer Scott McLaughlin. Oh, hey, Scott. Lace him up for some bees talk right now. I'm a damn f***er! It's the Skate Pod on WEEI. Welcome into episode 54 of the Skate Podcast. I'm Brian D. Fleece, joined by Bridget Prue and Scott McLaughlin. We have a couple games to dive into from the Bruins Islanders series, but first and foremost, I'd like to ask you guys how your Memorial Day weekend was. Any highlights? I know you guys were at the game. I was not. They don't let me in the garden, anywhere near the garden. For good reason. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Brian threw something on the ice. No, <laughs> it's not he's one of those guy. things. He's, he's Wasn't a lot actually... of bottles. Uh, yeah, no, it was good. It was all highlighted by Bruins, really. Uh, it was great to have full capacity back Saturday night for Game 1. thought Game 2 on Monday, again, just a great crowd. Really into it early with that, that coil goal. And then, you know, Islanders take them out of the game a bit. But then that third period comeback, I thought the crowd was crazy. So uh, it was Great, great to hear hear fans, see fans, and really have like that true playoff atmosphere back. It, yeah, and that the fact that they tied, it really felt like they were set up to take a really strong hold on that series. Obviously, overtime doesn't go their way in game two, but it it felt like everybody was on board <laughs> with it going when it went to overtime. The crowd was definitely thinking this is the Bruins game to win, and everybody was having a good time, really, up until <laughs> that little uh, end breakaway play. So, I mean, and Brian, you asked about the weekend. It was the weather was garbage, so pretty much the only thing people could look forward to was, you know, some playoff hockey. I would say playoff basketball, but that didn't really go so well. <laughs> well, you two have been around the garden a lot this this season. Obviously, um, on the ninth floor, and you've been for the most part of the year it was empty arenas, and then the fans kind of trickled in as the season came to a close. But obviously, on Saturday, really Saturday, I would say first and foremost, um, you know, could you guys get that that feel? around Causeway Street that, all right, life is somewhat back to normal now. It was an actual playoff field. People were filing in and out of bars, and I'm sure a lot of Bruins chants and excitement. I know, Scott, somebody tweeted at you that like they had closed the doors for some reason because there were so many people filing in. Yeah, like, apparently that, that was something that I guess they've done before. Like I haven't gone as a, a fan in forever, so I didn't know this, but apparently a lot of fans didn't know it either. I guess they like stagger entrances, so they they'll, like shut it down for a period of time, and then let in like another big group of fans or whatever, but people didn't know that. So that like I I'd seen multiple tweets and like texts from people who were 
like freaking out because it was like seven forty five. It's supposed to be an eight o'clock puck drop. And, you know, as we know with NBC, like that actually means like eight twenty five. But yeah, people were like, We're stuck out here and like can't get in. But I as far as I know, everyone ultimately got in on time. Uh but yeah, outside it it, it was great. Uh like there it was, it was packed. And fans everywhere, you know, you saw lines at bars and pubs and all that and there was a major what's the what's the bar it's kind of new across the street from the the entrance there's what was it banners i don't think it was that but it was it was just the wait looked like it had to be an hour long honestly like it was just the street was just packed with people waiting to go in get a beer get lunch get whatever and i don't know scott you have to agree actually because it's just an objective fact the rowdiness feels like it's up, like, at least, like, 50%, maybe 100%, because people haven't been able to go to, you know, playoff events or even just sporting events in general. So it feels like they're getting it all out, like, all in one sitting, and they're really – they're booing the the pregame uh, video board where it says you have to only have two beers as, as your limit. They're booing the fact that it says no smoking, even though you haven't been able to smoke inside a building since, like, forever. By the way, I smelled weed at last game. <laughs> I definitely smelled I smell weed. Some, like, I smelled some in the parking garage after. So, yeah, I, the, was, no, the parking different. garage always smells like weed. Yeah. But the game, like, I was sitting on the ninth floor. Someone in the deck below us was definitely, like, yeah. vaping something. But A lot a lot of fans named Sully and Fitzy booing the beer <laughs> limit when they're pulling out their, their um, nips of McGillicuddy from their pocket they <laughs> right. snuck in. So all, it's all good for them. Um. Well, that's great. Yeah, I mean, look, I saw, I saw, the lower bowl was, you know, seventy five percent packed. It looked like for warmups alone, and and that's something that you, Boston always goes hard for the playoffs, but that's something that you really see in like the Stanley Cup Finals more so than you know any other round. So yeah, it was great to see the fans back, and I definitely thought uh, that it was a huge advantage for the Bruins, even in Game Two. I mean, they, despite the losing effort, I mean, the crowd, the crowd was. If the Bruins found a way to score at the end of regulation or in overtime, the roof would have came off the garden. But I think we should we'll jump back to game one first. Um Bruins got take a one nothing lead in the series. And I think that both games so far have really depicted how the Islanders play and why they're frustrating to play against and even watch for different reasons. Game one was a losing effort by the Islanders, but the Bruins outshot them just about two to one throughout the course of a game. And up until McAvoy's goal in the third period, midway through, after the Islanders just had a power play that could have given them the lead. Um, the Bruins finally get a lead from McAvoy, and then Pashnak's hat-trick goal gives them a two-goal cushion. And then finally, finally, after out-shooting them 42-20, there's breathing room. So, and obviously, I, like I said, Pashnak's hat-trick goal. So the first line really came to play. But just speak on how frustrating it is from the Islanders to watch the Islanders essentially get dominated for most of the game, but yet they have a chance to go ahead midway through the third period. Yeah, and that's, you know, people who have watched, like, all of the Islanders-Penguins series, like, I had someone who covers the Penguins tweet at me, like, get ready for it. Like, this is the Islanders' playoff experience. Like, this this is what they do. You'll think they're getting dominated, and you look up, and it's, like, still one goal game or a tie game. It's just like, huh, it feels like they should be winning by, like, three. And even... uh you know, game two, the way that started, the Bruins completely dominate the first period, and they come out with a you know one nothing lead, and then and it's like eh, it feels like they should be up by more, and then sure enough, it gets to the second period, and the Islanders 
I thought that second period really said a lot about the Islanders because they'd been dominated pretty thoroughly in game one. They'd been dominated pretty thoroughly first period of game two. And a weaker team could have folded there. And, like, essentially the series could have been over if the Bruins just kept going at that rate. And the Islanders punch back, and they punch back hard, and they end up taking a 3-1 lead uh, into the second intermission. And, you know, I felt like the Bruins almost weren't really ready for that pushback. Like, even if it's not conscious, like, oh, this is going to be easy, sometimes that just happens to, like, seep into your mindset when you're in control, you have the puck, you're in their zone, you're getting all the shots, you're not giving up many chances. Like, sometimes just subconsciously, your effort starts to lag a little bit and, and you start to kind of take some stuff for granted. And then when the other team comes out, like the Islanders did in the second period, it's like, oh, whoa, hold on. Uh, this, this is a different team than what we were just facing. And I didn't think the Bruins definitely didn't handle that well in the second period. Then the Bruins punch back in the third and that showed us a lot about them. Like clearly neither of these teams are, are going to roll over, going to quit. I thought the Capitals did at times in the first round, especially that game four where the Bruins just completely dominate. I was like, what are, like, what are the Capitals doing? Like, you're down 2-1, and you just no-show for a game four? I don't see that happening in this series. I don't think there's going to be much pushover. Uh, I still think the Bruins are a better team, which obviously we're going to get into. But, yeah, that, that game two showed me a lot about the Islanders and showed why they can be so frustrating, because they can, they can take punches, they can, you know, get pinned in their own zone, and still make a game of it and still hang in there. So, uh, Bridget, I want to throw something to you because I know you wanted to talk about special teams in Game 2, and I thought that the turning point in Game 2, despite the fact that the Bruins ultimately tied the game in forced overtime, but what allowed the Islanders to show Scott and myself and all other spectators that they are mentally tough and they're a much different opponent and difficult opponent than Washington um, started, I thought, when... Pashnak took an ill-advised goalie interference penalty, which, look, on the one hand, you want to see him go hard to the net. That's what I say all the time. You want to go hard to the net, but you cannot. You have to know where you are. You have to know that they're going to call that, and that power play clearly gave the Islanders momentum, and they capitalized on it, and now I want to throw it over to Bridget because I know that was one of her biggest takeaways from the game, too, specifically. Yeah, and without that Bailey goal on the power play, like you mentioned, that goes in off the skate of Jeremy Lozon. I think that the game, first of all, the momentum of the game is different. That was the beginning of their three-goal second period. And it was an unfortunate bounce for the Bruins for the most part. But what happened was that what the Islanders do on their power play, which is so different from the way that Washington sets up their power play, is that they try to get the puck really low. So they like to take the puck all the way down, sometimes like at the posts or even sometimes a little bit behind the goal line. And um, so that they get it down there. And then they're fine shooting it in off someone. They're trying to make the pass, if they can, into the crease or, or low in the slot. And sometimes they can find somebody like Palmieri sitting on the opposite side or Pajot, um, Beauville, you know, who's ever drifted down low there. But they've been effective. Like, Beauvillier got the puck on the post, and one of their goals came off of – it was the Pajot goal – came off of Beauvillier um, on the power play just handling the puck at the – left post, and then sliding it over, and an easy goal for Pajot uh, right on top of the crease. So uh, they like to play down low. They're not going to set up that one-timer, like the Ovechkin one-timer that Washington 
kept running and the Bruins kept taking away. So it's a different adjustment the Bruins are going to have to make because, first of all, that was an adjustment the Islanders made, was to go lower. Um, and the stick work by the defensemen, just the, you know, sticks weren't necessarily in the right lanes. They weren't necessarily playing the guys uh, the way they needed to. That's going to be a major adjustment they're going to need to make before game three, and that's definitely a different look that the Bruins got than they did against the Washington Capitals, but the Bailey goal off the skate of Lausanne really was the turning point in the game, and the, the confidence went up from there. It t- I mean, it tied the game. So, and, and honestly, without that goal and that, that bad bounce, this game is a Bruins win. Yeah. Um, to your point, yeah, it, like their power play is a reflection of the the way that they just play as a team. Like, they'll... They'll play ugly. They they know they're not the most skilled team in the world, so they're not going to look for pretty plays. Like they're not, you know, it doesn't have to be tic tac toe, clean passing. You know, great one timer. Like yeah, they'll just they'll get it down low. They'll throw in front, bank it in, jam at the at the crease, like whatever it takes. So yeah, that is an adjustment for the Bruins because they're going to have to be better prepared to to handle kind of that ugly play down low and you know be be able to. Like you said, stick work, like clear out the front of the net, just whack pucks away. Take the pass away from Beauvillier. That that yeah. I'm specifically thinking of the Beauvillier play because it was so nice and so easy. It just looked so easy for him. He had like four or five seconds to play with the puck, get it the way he wanted on his six, settle it down, and get it over to Pajot. It was just he just had too much time. He had too uh clean of a pass. Like there there wasn't much impeding him at all, so um, and he was, like I was saying, standing right next to one of the posts, which is clearly in too deep uh, for you to want someone to get on the power play. So that one stuck out in my head, especially even going back and watching that highlight as something that should be an easy adjustment, guys. But ha- but what do you think about that? Well, it's easier said than done. And I'm glad you guys brought up the Islanders' power play and how they like to work it down low because, look, the Bailey goal, uh, that that's... Even the Islanders were surprised that one goes in. Obviously, it's a pass attempt to the slot. goes off Lausanne skate. And Scott will bring up your article a little bit later about Lausanne today, which I thought was uh, a that, very funny... That was mine. That, that was your I article? I was Lausanne. Well, there, there were, we had two Lausanne. Oh, we yeah. had the one, the dueling one, Lausanne. The one, the one that said something like, is Lausanne the worst 5-on-5 five five defense in yeah. the playoffs? Which well, I that was Scott, because, yeah. you, you know, I don't usually have such a, a aggressive title well, on mine. Well, here, here, here's, here's, the, here's the beauty of it, is that the headline is exactly what Scott wanted it to be, and then you read the article, and it's really Scott talking about, you know, justifying how he's really not that bad. I mean, the numbers may say so, but it was misleading. But anyway... So the Bailey goal goes that's, off. That's the Scott journalism experience that's, right there. Well, that, that, was, that was John Butchergrass's quote. That was what Butchie said on uh, Gresham Keefe today. So I was just going off that. I was like, ooh, like you just threw out something juicy. Let's see if it's actually true. And it is if you cherry pick your stats. Like, right. it, it, you know, pe- people can read it. I did I did the nerdy deep dive on all the stats. Uh, if you, people want to go to WI.com. Big course, the article. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> So you know, I don't, I don't think uh, deep stats dives make for the most interesting yeah. podcast material. Yeah. But you're gonna yeah. get but, some clicks with the titles. So. Yeah, well, <laughs> sure. I just, I just, thought, I just thought it was, I thought it was, I got a chuckle out of it, Scott, because I know the, I know the game that you're playing. But I also, <laughs> I also like the article. It's a good article. Anyway, so the Bailey goal goes in off Lozon skate, and it's almost like, uh, obviously, gives the Islanders momentum. The Palmieri goal, 
uh, I, from Tuca's perspective and the defense's perspective, which I believe once again was the Lozon Clifton pairing. Um, I didn't like it from any of those angles. But then the third goal was the, was the Pajot goal on the power play, and that was a goal that the Islanders drew up. That's how they want their power play ideally working. And when you watch a team on the penalty kill, it's not often. Typically, they they're looking north, right? You have the defenseman in front of the net at the bottom of the circles, the penalty killers in the top of the circles, whatever uh, the forwards. I mean, and you're looking at the top of the umbrella and, and the wings for the one timer, and, and and you're making sure that the new bumper position that's been in the NHL the last few years is taken away. But the Islanders make you turn south, like they make you they make the defenseman kind of look towards their their goal line, and it just changes things. And so then you turn your back on you certain, turn your back on certain passes and certain lanes. So you brought up how do you adjust that? So I so it's almost like you want to overcommit down low and, and bring your forwards a little bit deeper in the circles and have your defense, you know, patrolling down low. But then all of a sudden that opens up the top of the umbrella again, and it's almost like that's what the Islanders want the Bruins to do. So I think uh, what ideally what you want to do is just have better awareness in front of your goal. I don't think that the Bruins want their forwards to come down too low in the in the box. I think that plays right into the Islanders' hands. Yeah, because and to your point, they're already going to keep those guys down low. So the the Palmieri goal is kind of an example of what you're talking about because it's a point shot from Nick Letty that goes off the inboards, bounces in front, Palmieri taps it in because he gets the shot from the point. And I don't know if it was intentionally wide the way it was, but it came right out front off the end boards, right to a stick. Easy goal. Um, so Easy goal because the defense didn't <laughs> find him. It shouldn't have been an easy goal, but it was. It was. Yeah. It, it, looked, it ended up looking easy, but it, I'm guessing that's kind of what you mean when you can't overcommit because somebody like Letty. Well, that was 5 5 though, yeah. was it not? Yes, yeah. Yeah. but that's still the same idea. You got the Palmieri's out front of the net, yep. and you're you're able to get that point shot. The guys, I mean, the Islanders are very good out in front in terms of redirecting or just picking up garbage in front of the net. That's what they do. It, it, it's That's their bread and butter. They wait for teams to make mistakes, and they're opportunistic. I was telling Scott before the podcast, game two was, was the most typical Islanders game, right? Look at the Bruins goals. Coyle's beautiful goal. Uh, Bergeron and Martian, beautiful shots. Bailey shoot passes it to the slot, goes off of Bruins skating in. Palmieri, you know, scores an unconventional goal that I'm not going to take away blame from the Bruins because there was fault on the Bruins' end. Uh, the Pajot goal, power play goal off of a brutal call. I I don't want to spend too much time because I don't want to give the refs the limelight, but that call in a playoff game is bullshit. I'm sorry. It's terrible. It, it's terrible. It, you can't make that call. It's a 2-1 to game in the second period. I just said I'm not going to go into it. <laughs> But Carlo is literally whispering sweet nothings to Komarov. Hey, you want to go to the Grand afterwards? Some of the boys and me are going out. And they give him two minutes for cross-checking, and they don't even call matching minors. Well, now it's a two-goal game. Ultimately, the Bruins tied it in force overtime, so fine. But then in overtime, uh, you know, obviously Lausanne goes off the skate, and then they get a breakaway. So it was a very Islanders-esque game, and it was frustrating. And, but, and- you know, on some nights... Brian, it doesn't go like that for the Islanders. Like, that was some, like, a few well, times where they end up benefiting from that that penalty call on Carlo, a bounce off the end boards, a bounce off the skate of Lausanne, a, an ill-advised pass that goes off the skate of, skates of Coyle. Those, I mean, how many times are you going to get that lucky? It just doesn't happen for you like that. So, yeah, they're playing that style of game. The goals they get are ugly. They're on, they're on just 
capitalizing on stupid plays that didn't bounce the Bruins' way, but you don't always get four chances, five chances the way they did. Well, and that's where it's going to be really interesting to see what the Bruins do now, because in a lot of ways, that Game 2 reminded me of Game 1 of the Capitals series, where it was the same deal. Like, that first Capitals game, it was. It seemed like every goal was, like, double deflection off someone's skate, like, whatever. And just like, what on earth? And then the Bruins cleaned that stuff up. Like, they did a better job lifting sticks, clearing out bodies, letting Rask see shots, not having shots deflected in front of them. The Bruins generally do a pretty good job of cleaning that stuff up when they lapse like they did in Game 2. And now they're going to have to do it again. So, you know, we'll see. Like, even that that last game against the Capitals when they had whatever it was, 40 shots, Cassidy even said, like, we were okay with it because a lot of them were from the outside and Rask, Rask saw them cleanly. I think the Bruins can get back to that. I think they can do that against the Islanders. Like, yeah, if they get some zone time, fine. But keep them to the outside. Let Rask have clear shooting, you know, clear lanes of vision. And and clean that stuff up and not put yourself in position to give up those lucky goals. Because, yes, they're lucky, but they happen because the Islanders are able to get it down low and they're forcing bodies to collapse around the net. So you create that luck by doing what they did. But the Bruins are are capable of cleaning that up, and I I think they will. Like I would guess, you will not see the Islanders with the puck thrown it across the crease as many times as you did in Game Two. Can I just pose this as a as a topic to kind of transition off of that? Because goaltending has to do with some of the some of the situations going on. You, you're talking about you know Rass being able to see the puck through. Yeah, he had uh, pretty clear lanes to see for most of the game, um, but. Once again, we're having this conversation last night and, and this morning in between Game 2 and Game 3 that Rass doesn't look 100% healthy. And, and even Cassidy said he wasn't moving um, to his spots as quickly as – or he wasn't tracking um, the puck as, as he was in the Capitals series for most of the time. So – and then even this morning with the update um, – on Tuesday morning about Raskin saying he hasn't really even heard. And he said, well, he said he assumes it's Rask, which kind of you can imply what you want from that, unless he hears otherwise at this point. But he did say he's got some nagging injuries that are lingering. And, and you know, that's they have a perfectly capable backup. But at what point do the injuries, you know, make him need rest? Obviously, you don't want to pull him too early because we saw what happened with Vegas. And they put in Leonard instead of flurry to rest them and it just was an absolute train wreck for for vegas so like there's such a delicate balancing act that they could find themselves in if tuca is just a little bit banged up you know maybe like 90 percent good to go instead of 100 percent. what do you do i guess brian you first uh what do you do with this with this kind of nagging injury situation for tuca well, first of all, I found last night's comments by Cassidy interesting. I didn't think it was one of those games, and you guys know me. I'm not somebody who's a Tuca, like, you know, uh, give Tuca a break. I, I definitely don't harp on him. I, when, when he deserves criticism, I'm not afraid to give it to him. I didn't think last night was one of those games where he necessarily deserved it. I thought that out of the four goals scored, goals one, three, and four, certainly he had n- nothing was on him. I think goal two was a collective issue. As far as your question, though, Bridget, uh, and, and maybe that's a little gamesmanship by 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 Cassidy, knowing his player, knowing like, hey, we're going into a hostile environment next game. I need you to, I want you to 
prove me wrong, even if he has to play the villain uh, with Tuca for a second. As far as his health goes, I think Scott, like as if, as long as Tuca tells the powers that be, I'm good to go. He, they're gonna they're gonna stick with him as long as his play doesn't suffer. Because I think I think that if Tuca's saying I'm 85, 90 percent, okay, he's not 100, but but he's still giving up a couple goals a game, giving the Bruins a chance to win. Most importantly, I, I don't think they take him out. But like I said before the playoffs started, I have a tough time seeing Tuca's health holding up for four potential seven game series. And that's and why that's where the question comes in: Do you rest him a game? And when do you feel I, I, comfortable? I don't, because I don't think you don't feel I, comfortable in a tied series. I don't think I don't think you I don't think you give Swayman in the net going into game three because right now it's too. No, it's, no, definitely not now. It's too. It, it would depend. It would depend. I mean, but 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 I think I actually made a point that a few weeks ago, and, and you guys were quick to say you got you, you don't want to mess with their head. So I think unless his health prohibits him from starting. I think you have to allow Tuca to to, to stay in the, stay in the net, and I just thought it was interesting because last week on the Greg Hill show, Tuca said a comment like the way my style of play, I could play another ten years. Okay, can you get through the next two months? <laughs> yeah, without, with, with the way you play, I'm not so sure. So I, on the one hand, I have a hard time seeing the Bruins winning the cup without Swayman getting in the net at some point, but I think it will be because Tuca can't go, and I, I yeah, I don't think that's right now. Yeah, I think it's gonna be. A game to game, day to day thing where they're just gonna have to keep monitoring. Look, he's taken, he's had days where he's just done some individual work before practice and hasn't really been on with the whole group. Uh, he's, I don't know if he's done in the playoffs, but in the regular season, he like he skips some morning skates type deals. So, you know, I think. And the Bruins were off today, so there's really not much you could glean from anything that they. There's no practice. No, yeah. So. So Rask might have been in for some treatment, but that would have been it. Um, but yeah, it, it's uh, you're gonna Rask is gonna need to be honest about where he is, and they're gonna have to keep an eye on it because after the game, maybe Cassidy just wasn't tipping his hand. But I almost got the impression that, like, and I guess people watching on TV maybe didn't see as much of this, but when you would look behind the play, like. Rask was definitely slow to get up a couple times, kind of hunched over, like, just looked uncomfortable. And Cassidy didn't, like, basically just shrugged that off. And so, like, I assume he's fine. He finished the game. Um, And almost acted like, you know, like he didn't really notice that. And then I felt like today when he was asked about it again, that's when he acknowledged that there were nagging injuries, that, you know, whatever. And it was like, it was almost like he realized, like, oh, yeah, you know what? Like, he is still banged up. Like, let me get ahead of this. So, uh, you know, so I'm not saying, like, oh, he's fine. Like, what's the problem? And the next thing you know, he's not healthy enough to play. Um, Plus, you know, he may not have been paying full attention to that, trying to make his own adjustments. Yeah, and he was made so some much other comments on. about, you know, that the coaching staff needed to do a better job, especially with the younger guys showing them what they need to do in the second period to make adjustments. So he was probably more concerned with stuff like that. And then maybe goes back and, and is looking at tape for what they need to do game three and sees, you know, a little something he didn't see the first time or he gets some insight from the goalie coaches like, hey, this is what Tuka's, you know, coming in to get treatment for. Um, so it's it's evolving. It's something to keep an eye on. Obviously, today, Tuesday, we didn't get anything new uh, in terms of knowing, like, you know, he, how many reps he's taking in practice or anything like that because it was an off day. And we don't have an update on Craig Smith either or um, Kevin Miller really at, at this point after game two. I, th- I think on Tuca quickly, um, to Scott's point, I think the best way we can leave it for now is that 
it's going to be a day-to-day thing. You, you have a you have a player who uh, you know is clearly ailing to an extent, um, but at the same time gives you a chance to win. On the behind the bench, you have a coach who is willing to make the hard decisions, whether it's his goaltender or in other other positions. And we've seen that it's a trick. It's a tricky situation because we've seen two coaches um, make interesting goalie changes in the last, you know, handful of days. As you mentioned, Pete DeBoer in Vegas, and you, you, Mark Andre Fleury is playing fantastic hockey. And you go into round two against the Avalanche, and you want to arrest them because you believe in the two-headed monster, two-goalie theory. Personally, it had been like. Over a month since Leonard had played. Yeah, and look, I I think that I think it's I think I'm a believer. You go with the hot hand. Yep. Now sometimes in the playoffs that means a goalie gets yanked, a guy comes in relief, and you, and he plays well, and you stick with him. But I don't believe in the we're gonna alternate starters. So that didn't work out for Vegas. They got lit up, and and now you're in a situation where you're flurry on the bench. You may have seen him. Uh, on the bench during the game, and he was pissed, rightfully so. He's like, "That's my net, and we just lost six to one. We got embarrassed, or seven to one." On the other hand, um, one of the best coaches I think that is currently in the league and probably of all time, Barry Trotz. Unfortunately for the Bruins, is on the other bench. He goes with uh, Varlamov and takes out Sorokin. And and look, at the beginning of the game two, when Coyle scores that goal, I'm sitting there saying, uh, the Bruins could, you know, the Islanders could have some trouble here because now you have two goalies that." Or on the ropes, and, and who do you go with? And I looked over it and said to Scott, I don't know if Varlamov's fully healthy. I, I looked over it and I said that because on that coil goal, and, and in the first period in general, he didn't, I, it kind of seemed like he was still dealing with something and he wasn't moving very quickly. Obviously, he, he kind of evened out as the game went on, but I, I know I looked at Scott and said, you know, he's another goalie dealing with a nagging injury. He got hurt playing against the Bruins towards the end of the season, yep. end of the regular season. Um, and so I was wondering if that was going to factor in for him more so that, and I wasn't even at the time thinking of Tuca having that problem, but it turned out, you know, and, and it could still come up in the series. It, well, yeah. I, I think, I think, I think one of the biggest things that the Bruins could do to regain momentum in a series is to light, and we'll get into game three. I don't want to give too much away, but if they go out in game three and, and, and light up Var, uh, Varlamov, now there comes that seed of doubt, but. And now, now, and now, maybe they have a Vegas situation. But where it stands right now, uh, Varlamov came in in Game Two, and it worked out for Barry Trotz and the Islanders. Yeah, I think, and there's some similarities there between like the Bruins and Islanders situations, not in terms of changing goalies, but in terms of the overall situation. Like Trotz has made not one but several tough goaltending calls because Varlamov wasn't ready for Game One of the first round, so he goes with Sorokin who played well in that game. Varlamov was ready for game two. He goes back to him. Then Varlamov struggles in game three. He goes away from him and goes back to Sorokin. And now, you know, game two of this series, it goes back to Varlamov. But to Bridget's point about Varlamov being a little banged up too, like that's kind of their rask. Like he, Var, Varlamov's the, you know, generally in the Vesna Vesna, conversation yeah. somewhere. Now, the three uh, Vesna finalists were announced today, right? He was yeah, not one of them? Yeah, he just missed out. No, it was, uh, yes, Vasilevsky, Flurry, and Grubauer, who I, that was a little surprising. I think Grubauer benefits a lot from the team in front of him, but anyway, separate discussion. That makes DeBoer's decision to go with Leonard even worse. You have a Vesna candidate yeah. that you took out of the goal. Yeah, Flurry had a terrific season. Um, 
and Sorokin has more experience. He played more games this year than Swayman, but kind of similar. And and Sorokin's a little bit older too because he played so many years in Russia. Um, but similar in terms of like a rookie in his first NHL postseason, and Trotz showed some faith in him and was rewarded in the first round. I didn't think Sorokin was particularly poor in Game One. Oh. You know, gave up some juicy rebounds, but. Uh, Obviously, Trotz, you know, saw something he didn't like or something that he thought Varlamov was going to be the right choice. And I didn't even think Varlamov was great in game two. Like, he was good, obviously good enough to win. Great, he great saving overtime on Taylor Hall. Yep, for sure. Oh, yeah. Um, close. Yeah, but he he also, I pointed this out at one point, like, he was having some trouble guiding pucks into the right areas. Like, he was putting pucks back out in play in position for the Bruins to take advantage. So was Sorokin, and, So was yeah. Sorokin in game one. They were shooting for pads, and that yep. just got a nice, lively bounce off the pads, and one of those ended up being a Pasternak goal and as part of his hat trick, which we swore we were going to talk about, but we have not. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's almost... What is there to say? I mean, I mean, uh, I mean Scott, I, I, well, I want to let you finish your thought if you had to finish no, on well, the actually, on the On Pasternak and the... I guess I'll expand it to the Bruins' top line in general. Uh, I thought one of the most interesting things for Game 2 was going was seeing how the Islanders are going to adjust to dealing with the Bruins' top line, which was obviously so dominant in Game 1. You know, Pasternak has the three goals, but that line all night was creating chances and was all over the Islanders' zone in dangerous areas. And I thought for two periods, the Islanders did a much better job against that line in Game 2. And was really keeping them out of those dangerous areas, not giving them great scoring chances. And then, like we've seen from that line so many times, even when it's like, oh man, are they having an off game? Like, uh, are they going to, you know, not be there tonight? Bruins can't count on them. That line's the one that takes over in the third period and leads the comeback effort, scores both goals. And and there was an interesting question in the post game that Cassidy was kind of like, like, you could tell he was like, what are you talking about? Because he said, like, how were the Islanders able to shut down? The top line, and he's like, top line played fine. Like, that was, I'm guessing that wasn't the question the guy meant to ask. Like, he probably meant to be like, hey, they kind of did some new stuff. Like, they were able to slow him down a little bit. No. So he was just like, uh, yeah, they, they still played well. I mean, they, just look at the third period. I, I thought, I, I didn't think the Bruins lost game two because of a lack of offensive depth or chances. I think, you know, look, game one was obviously the Pasternak show. And I think that. During his hat trick, you saw why he is one of the best goal scorers in the world because his first goal, he uh, outweighed Sorokin in a way that only maybe a handful of players in the league can do, maybe. Um, and that was a beautiful goal. The second goal showed off his um, ability to get the quick release with the one-timer um, off a of rebound. And the third goal, what I loved about the third goal was that he picked off Brock Nelson's pass in the neutral zone and, and it just exploded. And um, obviously, cut it. By the way, Taylor Hall's net drive was everything on that goal. You yep. know, I mean that that Pashnak isn't allowed to go from from left to right across to the top of the slot and, and and get that shot through without Taylor Hall distracting and dragging both defense with him. Um, but in game two, you got the opening goal from Coyle. I thought that the Krejci Debrusk Hall line 
had their their chances and their looks. They had some yeah. bad puck luck. I mean, McAvoy found Krejci back door. Um, there was one shift in particular. It looked like the Harlem Globetrotters, and then I don't know how the net came off the moorings. They didn't show it on oh, TV. Oh, yeah. Scott and I were in the break just like, what, the, there was no yeah, replay was of anything. So bad. By the, the way, on the save was not when it came off. So how did right, it come off? Exactly. And, and as, a, as a spectator on television, I was like, uh, the, the, the announcers were like, Pierre was like, well, the Islanders won't be able to change. Okay, well that that that's really you know damaging for the Islanders. They they were about to give up a goal. I'm sorry, they but were <laughs> that line and I and, and I've heard people kind of dogging DeBrusque after the game. Yeah, I don't know why. I thought he kind of I thought he had he hustled. You know me. I thought he played with some piss and vinegar. It's so much so he got five thousand dollar right. fine for the cross check in Mayfield. And I'm I'm glad that I that I'm not crazy. Like <laughs> we hadn't talked about this before, but I'm glad that you think that because I heard. People on both stations today, including Rich Keefe, say like they want DeBrusque off that line, like That's moving the, back the, down in the lineup. He's the easy target, and, right? Isn't and I was he like, the easy target. Man, like, yeah, he's not Craig Smith, and you do lose something. But yeah, I thought he played well. Like, I thought his effort was there. That his energy was. was there. The only he argument played a full full hundred foot game. The only argument I, I personally look, he was battling beneath the goal line. He was battling in front of the net. Um, he was helping out in the corners. With uh, whether it was Krejci or Hall when they were out, I I liked his game. I thought he did everything but score. I I even thought that, you know, there, there were a few times where I, sometimes DeBrusque annoys me because I think that he gives himself um a more more of a zigzag line to a puck than he has to. Like sometimes he got he cuts back and forth behind the defenseman's back as opposed to just picking a side and going because he can outskate them. A little Sagan esque in that yes, way. Yeah, yeah, exactly, Scott. And I, I thought he did that a few times, but for the most part, he was fine. I thought he did everything besides score. The only argument I would hear that I would agree with is that that third line was clicking together with DeBrus, Coyle, and Richie. So don't break them up and put Kuhlman as a short term solution. But people were saying that DeBrus was slowing down that second line. I don't see that. But that second I, line is a patient line, by the way. Like it's a crate like well, Krejci is your center on how, that line. No, no offense. But how do you slow down Krejci? <laughs> Come on. Come on, right? That's what I that's kind of what I'm getting at. It that's oh, that was not a, really that was low, how that, that was a low blow, line brain. works. Oh, are we gonna do a Krejci impression now? That was a low blow. Um and, and I thought the fourth line was good yesterday too. I thought they brought energy. Um, I thought the Bruins lost the game because they were undisciplined in certain aspects. Um, you know, you had you had Mike Riley finally decided to shoot the puck and breaks a stick and then plays with the broken <laughs> stick. That's a penalty. Um, they had another too many men on the ice call, and I thought that aside from McAvoy and Grizzlick, I didn't like um, – from Carlo on down, I didn't love the other four defensemen. I thought Clifton was okay, but I thought he and Lozon got exposed. And another area I thought the Bruins got out worked in yesterday was the coaching aspect. I thought they were outcoached. I saw – I saw Clifton and Lozon go dash three during regulation, and then Cassidy decides to start them in overtime with the fourth line, and uh, the Islanders almost won the game in the first thirty seconds. And it's that like, was a bizarre, ch- like that was that was a not a second guess. That was a first guess. Like as soon as you saw them out on the ice, it was like, ooh, I don't well, know about that. And by, and by the way, the Bruins' fourth line of Lazar, Corrali, and Wagner—they are they're they're a very serviceable, good fourth line. I like them. I do. But when that fourth line of Sezikis, Martin, and Clutterbuck put their mind to a shift, they're going to win the shift. And you know that if they're starting overtime, they're going to win their shift. And I just thought to myself, if you're going to lose in overtime in the first 30 seconds of overtime, it better be because your best players are on the ice, not your third D pair and your energy line. And I, I, I thought that Cassidy had some questionable decisions, including 
guys, the sequence in which they lost, um, I thought that in that situation in overtime, you have to go Bergeron line, Krejci line, every other shift. So Bergeron line, Coyle line, Krejci, or Bergeron line, fourth line, Krejci. You gotta you gotta have them on the ice every every other shift. One of them has to be on the ice. And there was a sequence when they lost where it was the coil line. Uh, I'm sorry, it was the fourth line out there. And then they had an offensive zone faceoff. And then he rolls out the coil line. And not that Coyle or Richie or um, Kuhlman did anything wrong in that play. Obviously, it was a bad luck play. But you you have an offensive offensive zone draw. You got to have Krejci or Bergeron out there on that on that on that opportunity. And I thought I thought it was a dumb dumb choice by Cassidy. And I think he's a great coach. And I very seldom will criticize him. But I thought it was a bad choice. And the Lausanne pass. I know people are dogging Lausanne. If you go back and look at it, if it doesn't hit Coyle in the skate, that pass is zipped over to McAvoy, and it goes from left to right. And I think McAvoy takes it to the net, and something could happen. Um, it was and it's a set play. That's yeah, a set it, play they run. It's, a, it's, see, it, it's a play you see them do. Um, it was poorly executed and it was ill-advised. I agree it wasn't the right play, but I've heard people say there was nobody there. No. Mac- Cassidy said there well, was nobody there. There yeah, was. Ma- well, McAvoy was like circling back out because he had been down low, which is why Coyle was up high because he was the one covering for McAvoy. But yeah, it was like it was in the middle of the rotation where McAvoy was coming back out. Coyle was starting to, like, go back down towards the slot. So basically, you wait two seconds and you're making that or, pass, or just tap, or go down the. Or wall. if you're aware of your surroundings, just tap it to Coyle, who would have had not, about ten not feet. Not skates, like maybe to a stick. Yeah, and not like ninety-five miles an See, hour. Yeah, I mean, I, I and Coyle would have had like ten feet to walk down into the slot. If, if look, it's easy to be Monday morning quarterback, but that play to me could be even more dangerous because now you have. Sezikis, and then whoever the, uh, the third guy would have been, like on a two on zero. You know, I, you got to throw it down low. You got to throw it down deep. But did you yeah. guys have any issues with Cassie's decision making last night? I certainly did in that overtime session for sure. Uh, for so for me, mostly that start, just starting with Lozon and Clifton, is not to to your point. Like, obviously, you can lose an overtime on any shift. Uh, if I have to play Lozon, and obviously I'm going to be playing Lozon and Clifton at some point in overtime. But they're my third pairing out. Like, I, I'm not losing on the first shift with them out there. And you almost did because they ended up stuck out there for like a minute 40. Like, they just got pinned in. Couldn't get – the Bruins got it out just enough to get the forwards off. But the long change, the defense still wasn't able to get off. So they ended up out there for like almost two minutes. And it felt like you were just hanging on for dear life. There were two separate shifts that players were out there for, like, I would say yeah. around three minutes um, hemmed in. Well, both teams because of the long change. Yeah. But, so to, I guess to me, that would be it. Like, I'd have to go back, like, at the minutes uh, to your point about, you know, riding your top guys. And part of that's also, you know, maybe on the bench they know, hey, our, our guys are you know, a little bit tired and we can't just roll them, you know, every other shift or every third shift. Like, because I was thinking even, uh, Grizzly and McAvoy, you know, part of you wants what the Bruins do in like the third period when they're trailing is McAvoy is out there for like a minute of every minute and a half, basically. (laughs) Like he'll have a shift. He'll go to the bench for 30 to 40 seconds and then he's back on. And it's so tempting to want to do that in overtime too. But then like you're, Eventually, you're going to run him 
like run them ragged. So yeah, because you know, one overtime, it's not always going to end in one overtime. Right, you could be you know playing until three in the morning. You never know. So and that's where your depth comes in. But you look at a team like Tampa Bay, and they played a five overtime game last year. Yep. Do you think there was ever a stretch where John Cooper didn't have you know one of and they were they had injuries last year, so maybe it's a tough year to to decide it. But I mean, I just feel like Kucherov, Point, Hedman, Stamkos, these guys, they even go so far to dress seven D, which means they don't. Tampa believes in a, in a just roll three lines, and I just think that in overtime you can preserve energy by rolling three lines and just pick and choose when that third line is going to be Coyle or Corrales line or Lazar's line. And I just thought that, look, you come, you got four minutes left till the second to the intermission. Just get your best players on the offensive zone draw. Um, were there any other closing thoughts on game two before we look ahead? No, I'm, I think I'm good. All right. So the, the series will now transition down to Nassau Coliseum on Long Island. Uh, should there be any personnel changes? Mainly Lozon. Do you think he should be in the lineup or taken out? Or what do you guys think there? Well, if there's any chance Kevin Miller's back, then sure, I would go with Clifton Miller as my third pair and sit Lozon. Not likely. But I don't see Miller come back. As far as we know, he has not been on the ice yet. Uh, and even if he gets back on the ice Wednesday, he's probably not going to be ready for Thursday, I wouldn't think. Um, yeah, Lozon has definitely struggled at times. There's no question about it. Made a poor play on that one. He had a Bad, Scott, bad pinch worst, leading up to a goal in game one. Is he the worst uh, defensive five on, five, 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 five. He's defensive. not. The, the conclusion I reached is he is not. Uh, I think you, you can do worse. Be, because basically, like not to get too far into it, but what he's being asked to do, for the most part, he has done a decent job of. Like he, That third pairing gets far more defensive zone shifts than the top two pairings. And that's obviously by design because they want those top two pairings on for the more offensive situations. Uh, so the goal is they know that pairing is going to spend time in the D zone. They know they're going to give up attempts. The goal is keep them out of high danger areas. And for the most part, Lausanne and Clifton have done that. Like if you really dive into, okay, here's the Corsi, which is just raw shot attempts of all kinds. And here's the high danger chances and scoring chances. Lausanne rises up the charts the more you drill down into shot quality, which tells you that, yes, he's giving up chances in zone time, but they're not quality chances. Uh, he's having horrendous luck in terms of pucks ending up in the back of the net when he when he's on the ice. This like this is honestly like almost impossible to do, but when Lausanne is on the ice in the playoffs in the three games he's played, Tugarask has a 778 save percentage. Every other defenseman, Rask is over a 900 save percentage. And every other defenseman other than Clifton, he's over 920. Like, that's almost impossible to have that kind of split. And, yeah, a couple of them have been mistakes that Lausanne has made. Uh, but not all of them. Some have just been pure bad luck. A, a shot from the Capitals that tipped off his stick while he's trying to block a shot. Um, you know... There's been a couple. Of, one was on the power play, not five and five, but that one that goes just goes off his skate. Like he's doing the right thing. He's yeah, in position. He's, he's in the right spot, and like, what are you gonna do if a guy throws? Like, what is he supposed to react and jump over the puck in you know one one hundredth of a second that it gets there? Like, so I don't think he is as bad as just the raw goals against numbers suggest. And also, by the way, Lausanne has been on the ice 
He's been on the ice for five goals against at five on five in the playoffs. He's also been on the ice for four Bruins goals four uh, at five on five. Wasn't he also their penalty kill top and ice leader this year? Yeah. Him well, Carlo, actually, maybe, maybe it's skewed because I know he's, he was out for quite a bit. But In terms of per game, though, I think you're right. I think he was tops. Um, so, yeah, I don't think he's as bad as, you know, if you want to just cherry pick goals against, sure, it, it looks bad. But he's also been on for some goals for. He's contributed. He had a good pinch in leading up to uh, Pasternak's second goal. He was a big part of that play. Um, so look, if the, if the option is Lausanne versus Tenorti or Ashan, then I'm sticking with Lausanne. Like it's, a, it, it's going to be Lausanne, right? Yeah. We, we all can kind of agree that 90% I would, chance it's going to be Lausanne. I'll put it to you this way, Bridget, and it's nothing against them. But if, if, um, Jared Tenorti is in the lineup for game three over Lausanne, I'll be disappointed in Cassidy because I think that as a coach... Um, I think he needs to allow Lausanne the opportunity to hop back onto the bicycle and, and, and learn from his mistakes, and it'll go a long way. Because I truly believe, like Scott said, it was some misfortune. I thought the overtime giveaway, look, it's not like he passed it to Zizekas, okay? It was a it was a fluke play, got to make a better choice. But I thought besides that, I thought he and Clifton got exposed at times, but like Scott said, they're gonna give up chances, and it's not their fault that Cassidy started them in overtime and they got hemmed in. You gotta, you gotta know your players and what they're capable of. I thought he was honestly to Scott's article. I thought, I, th- I think the kid plays hard. I think he plays fine. He's up, basically Scott's re- article said this: he's on the ice for 99 goals for the Bruins and 100 against. <laughs> okay, so he's yeah. he, he's he's lucky. He's not. He's not. He's not. Something's going to happen when he's on the ice. Yeah, he. <laughs> he he's. Uh, I give him another chance. I think if he struggles again in Game Three, hopefully Miller would be back by by Game Four or somebody. But maybe then you make a decision. Let's not forget he's a rookie defenseman, and the adjust. So he had, and he still has several adjustments to make. I, when when we talk about going into Game Three and, and the rest of the series, and something that Cassidy talked about is that if you, this is your first time around. You're not picking up on those, you know, you're, they're showing you the video. You need to maybe be told or shown a few extra times because this is your first time maybe seeing. Whereas when you tell it to Krejci or Bergeron, they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, because they've, they've made that adjustment to other teams. They've been in the league so long. But with somebody like Lausanne, he's making mistakes, you know, for the maybe for the first time. He's, he's making the mistakes you make early on in your career. And unfortunately, it happens at the end of – end of the game well to end the game in game two but you and I know this from my own like career playing sports it's just like you make that mistake one time when you're young and then you're like I'm never gonna do that again and that's just kind of where he is he's a rookie hopefully this will stick in there you know it will well I guess the one thing that would concern me on that is the mistake in overtime did remind me of other mistakes he's made I'm thinking specifically about I forget who they were playing, but that game in the regular season when he had two horrendous turnovers where they were just like, he just passed it right onto the stick of an opponent. It might have been the Devils because I think Palmieri had one of them. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I think you're right. Um, and he got scratched after that game. Yeah. and But it was similar in that he was, it was like he had his head down and was passing where he thought 
players should be. And Cassie and, said, you have to look. Yeah, and, and you good have to players, look around. Veteran players look first. <laughs> yep. So Which like sounds so simple, but obviously the, the game moves so fast that sometimes, you know, especially a guy like Lausanne, where I don't think Lausanne's a natural in terms of stick handling or having like a, you know, kicking a puck from his feet to his stick or something. You know, where, like, if that's Grizzly out there, I think Grizzly has the confidence to make the play with his head up and he doesn't have to be looking at the puck coming in, whereas Lausanne's a little more shaky in that area and might need to be looking down a little bit more. But, yes, obviously, like, you have to be aware of your surroundings, have your head up, and not just throw the puck to where you think people are supposed to be without actually looking first because the game moves too fast and they're not always going to be there. Someone from the, like... For whatever reason, someone from the other team might be there, even though you weren't expecting it. So I would say that's that's a bit of a common theme if you want to tie that overtime mistake to other mistakes he's made. Um, but yeah, I, I I'm fine with giving him another chance. To you know, to everything we've said, like he does work hard, he does bring you know aggression on the ice, and and brings quite a bit that you want. And you just keep working with him to clean up that other stuff. That is, is obviously the weakness of his game. Like he's not great with the puck on his stick. That's, you know, something that he's going to have to keep working on. But I don't think you have a better option right now until Kevin Miller comes back. And I think when you say take a look at your surroundings and and, and pick your head up, you know, it's when he does pick his head up, he's going to see an environment that he's not used to being in front of 17 plus thousand screaming fans in an overtime situation. Probably not since his World Juniors time when he was with Team Canada. I mean, all these young players, Zaboros, Lozans, that a lot of these guys, even Taylor Hall, it's his first experience in Boston with with a full crowd, and it's not going to get any easier in Game Three with Nassau and those fans. So, um, what are you guys looking for in Game 3? How, how will the Bruins find success on the road? Tough environment. I think if there's a team that can do it, I think the Bruins have that experience, and they've been in a lot of tough road environments over the years, and they've been successful. So, uh, what are you guys looking for in Game 3? I think something we mentioned earlier, which is cleaning up the front of their net, uh, cleaning up those ugly chances down low where the Islanders are just crashing and getting pucks down low, getting them in front, throwing them across the crease, like just clean that area up because I don't think the Islanders are, I mean, look, we've talked about it. I don't think they're skilled enough offensively to even score many goals like the one Coyle scored in game two. Like they have so few guys who are going to blow by you or make great individual plays. Well, Matt Barzell had a few and he couldn't finish on them. Which, by the way, I think I mentioned this to you at the game, but that's kind of something that I think you see a lot with Barzell. And, you know, he's still kind he's of young. He's Swedish, so, no finish. <laughs> right. Like, he's he's young, so, like, he'll get better, but he seems to create a lot of really flashy plays where you're like, whoa, and then it doesn't actually turn into a great scoring chance. Uh, like, there was a funny sequence, I think it was in the Penguins series, where he put on, like, this, like, dazzling display, and Pierre said something like, when he plays like that, he's unstoppable, <laughs> yeah. and he had literally just been stopped. <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah, it was. He he did it again. Did you say it was against the Penguins? Because because he, yeah. he said the same thing in Game One against the Bruins. He like uh, maybe that I he like pulled up on Clifton and like you know it was like a nothing. I think it was like a shot that was stopped and it was just like yeah, exactly like what you said about Pierre uh, Bridget. Game three. What are you looking for out of the Bruins? Well, I think we've already kind of gone through 
a lot of the adjustments that need to be made. And the main one is what Scott said, uh, especially on the power play, but also just in general, um, not letting that pass get through down low. Um, it's it's kind of hard, though, because it's really, I mean, really, it's not even just for game three. There's just, it's just what they want to do coming into every game, which was have a solid penalty kill, which they completely had in the first series. Um, they, they need to make some changes to the way that they kind of structure that in the next series. I don't know if they really changed the personnel on the penalty kill too much. Probably not. But, um, and then on their power play, they didn't get too many too many opportunities. Power, the play, power looks play. good. The, pow- the power play looks, I mean, the first game, the power play looked great. They had two power play goals. One of them was an empty net power play goal, but we'll give yeah. it to Taylor Hall anyway. They just aren't, <laughs> they just aren't creating, they aren't creating many, many power play opportunities. Not to me is something that needs to change. I think that discipline is important for the Bruins. I think you want to stay out of the box. I think the Islanders are going to be a different team at home. I think, you know, if this was a seven-game series, all seven games in Boston, yeah, I think it would be tough for the Islanders to succeed the way they did in Game 2. But I think they're going to have a little bit more swagger and confidence offensively in Game 3 and 4. I think the Bruins need to stay out of the box. Two um, other keys would be mobility. you gotta you got to move your feet and outskate them. I think that the Bruins' defense need to really use the net as a shield. The Bruins' forwards need to give them some time on the, on the breakout. These moving picks... When McAvoy and Grizzlick and Riley and even Carlo, who's got long strides, and Clifton, for for what it's worth, these guys when they get they, when they get going, don't, don't, Matt Martin's not going to catch them. Like you know, they, they get. And with that said, the forwards have to have um, you know good support. Be there ten feet, twelve feet away for for an outlet pass. And I think the third key, get the lead, extend the lead. Yeah, I th- I think that's huge. I I was I was gonna mention that as well Brian uh playing from behind is not a good position for any team to be in but especially against the Islanders which that's they're completely built to play with the lead play or at least play even um and then kind of hang in there and get you late or get you on some sort of mistake so you you want to see the Bruins score first which they did last game they didn't hold on to it so you're gonna want to see them have, you know, they're going to want to play with more than a goal lead, I guess, if, if you want to look at it uh, just truthfully, honestly, because of the way that the Islanders well, play. But that's it's, it's yes, going to be tougher at, at, at Long Island. You want you want to get the Islanders out of the comfort zone, right? They're, if if they go down, there's a difference between being down one nothing and 2 nothing. Like, the second that the Islanders have to go, oh, crap, we have to start scoring some goals, that's when they're out of their comfort zone. They, they now they have to change their game, and I just think that you know one very encouraging thing I will say in a game two loss was the Islanders are a team that you don't want to play from behind against, like you said. But they had a two goal cushion in game two in the third period, and with nine fifty left, the Bruins were able to get two goals and come back and tie that game against a team that prides themselves on defense and structure. Which is exactly, I mean, this is exactly when we did our preview article. It was. What do the Bruins, you know, what advantages do the Bruins have and why do you think they're going to win the series? And it's just because the firepower and it's the Bergerons, the Postanocs, and the Marshans and the extra the extra talent that the Bruins have and the extra playoff experience that guys like Bergeron and Marshawn have that make them have that extra push. And they, they kept themselves in that game. The crowd was just, you know, like you said, almost blew the roof off when Marshawn scored to tie it. And send it into overtime, and 
I don't I don't see the Bruins ever really being completely out of a game, um, even when they're down to the Islanders. But it's definitely not a comfortable position for them to be in. Um, you never want to play from behind, and and like you said, Brian, it just takes you a little bit away from what you want to do. Um, so the the key is gonna be to score first, and I I. I'm guessing we'll see Varlamov again, um, though it's not confirmed. Yeah, I would assume so. Um, I guess one other thing I would say is the key is have the second line play like that again and create chances and hopefully for their sake get rewarded for it. Crazy uh, had a tip in play in overtime, like a tip play in overtime that I thought for sure was going to go in. Yeah, like, and Krejci Hall was, had that great chance. Krejci like, was creating chances. Krejci was being Krejci in overtime. He was finding the right guy. He was somehow squeezing the puck through seams that should not make it through, but Krejci always makes it through. And he had he had been playing down low, too, in front of the net a little bit, and he almost had that tipping goal. He, he set up a lot in, in overtime. I was impressed with what he did um, later in the game. Scott, that second line you speak of, if, if – uh... Smitty, who, by the way, on that most recent behind the beyond, I don't know if you guys watched it, gave a little behind the scenes curtain uh, as to why he's liked in the locker room. He, th- there was this some. Is what we. This there, is the stuff we need to know. There was some tunnel footage but during the Capital series where, uh, you know, they're all mic'd up, and uh, he was just. He had these one-liners that I was like laughing out loud, and I don't even I don't even know him or the inside jokes, but you could just tell everybody else is cracking up. Oh, and then and then uh, Pasta Pasta gave uh, Smith like the puck of the game after the uh, overtime goal against the Capitals that he scored, and Smith Smith was like. Um, he was speaking in this like country accent or, or something like that. He was going crazy. He did come from Nashville. And then and, and then and then all of a sudden he just goes uh, like. But all seriously, guys, good game. Get pucks deep. And it was like the everybody was just dying laughing, and it was one of those things where the camera was outside the locker room. Uh, it was funny. But so Scott, that second line you speak of, if Smith is not able to go in Game Three, do you, do you stick with DeBrusque on that line? I would because again, I thought DeBrusque played pretty well in Game Two. Like I didn't, I thought he helped that line, not dragged them down. Uh, apparently, there are other people who saw it differently. So, um, but you know, you can always make that switch in game if things aren't going well if DeBrusque has one of his off games and isn't bringing it like one thing about Kuhlman is very rarely is he out there and you question his effort you question you know some of his skill and he's, he's a limited player in terms of what he can do but Sometimes his effort his to do effort a little in, too much yeah his effort and energy always seems to be there so you can make that switch in game if you need to but I would start with DeBrusque on the second line again yeah, I think I think that you're you're smart to bring it up. I I had Taylor Hall circled as a very very important player um, in the next two games down on Long Island. I think he's I think he's due for a goal. Don't forget, Coolman by the way was I a top. Saying that to Scott goes, he's due. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't score, but he's due. Coolman by the way was a, was a top six foe for the Bruins during Game Seven of the Cup Finals a few years ago. Yeah, with DeBrusque on the left. <laughs> so <laughs> so if that tells you that the Bruins are deeper than they were going to the Cup Finals, it shows you that you know they can definitely. Mustered through this series, I, I do think I do think that the Bruins didn't. Coleman scored in was game, it? game six, six. Game yeah. six, yeah, kind of kind of iced it. Um, yeah, it was actually a six shot, but uh, I, I think the Islanders' home ice advantage will work a lot less. I'm not saying it won't work, but it will be a lot a lot less effective against the Bruins than say other teams that they could play. Because I just think, look, you're talking about a team that went into Vancouver. First of all, you're talking about certain players that went into Montreal down 0-2 and eleven. Won two games, won the series. The same two guys that had two goals each in Game Seven against the Canucks. More recently, they they had to play. Although Toronto 
continues to suffer. They they went up to Toronto. I can't years believe ago. we haven't mentioned Toronto. I'm trying not to well, make victory laps too here we go. soon. The Bruins the Bruins went to Toronto on that 19 Cup run. They went to Toronto uh, on Easter Sunday in Game Six and Four Seven. They also won two of three games in Columbus. They won both games in Carolina. So they know how to win in tough environments. I think the Islanders will be no different for the Bruins. But quickly, just to throw to Scott. Because of the Toronto loss, it actually tells the Bruins a little bit more what they need to know. If they make it past the Islanders, it, it actually solidified part of the next round bracket. Yeah, so it solidified which division faces which division. So it'll be the winner of the West against the winner of the North and the winner of the Central against the winner of the East with the Bruins and Islanders. So now it sounds just like- means Carolina or Tampa Bay. Yep, Those are the only two options next round for the Bruins. Which, you know, look, obviously... Tampa's one that that looms large if they end up winning that series. Like that's that's been your boogeyman in the playoffs the last few years. So, plus they stole Tom but, Brady, and they won. their baseball team's good. Like <laughs> Tampa Bay is not going to be the new boss. The way so. the way the way Scott was breaking down that sounded like he was talking about Game of Thrones again. Did we ever publish the yeah. behind scenes Game of Thrones? We're gonna release <laughs> ten the, minutes. If it's just in, say that for the off season. If it's, in, <laughs> if it's in high demand, I have I have one question before we go because we've gone a decent amount of time for just two games. Um, have your predictions changed at all in the series, Scott? And you were both in, you were both in five Bruins in five. Yeah, you you got the wrong. If the Bruins win the rest of the series, you got the wrong game. That's that you, true. You thought they're gonna lose Game Three. It's true. So Scott does wrong. have to change his prediction. No, but I, I never change my prediction until I absolutely have to. So I'm still I'm still gonna stick with Bruins in five. But I you're supposed to stick with it till the end. Yeah, and <laughs> until until I have to change. Like obviously, look if they lose another game, then there goes my prediction. But I'll stick with it for now. I mean, look, I I think they've been the better team for. Brian and I were discussing this before. I would say like five of the seven periods so far. You know, give the Islanders second period of game two and. And overtime, although even that, the Bruins had started to even out overtime before the, the winning goals. So I will say that that I thought that game two, you know, the great first, great third for the Bruins, that second period was god-awful. One of their worst I've seen in quite some time. As far as the overtime goes, I thought the Islanders played a good overtime. I thought the Bruins played a good overtime. I thought... Like when the Islanders scored, even though it was a crappy way to end it off the skate for the breakaway, it's not like the Bruins were dominating. And I was like, "Oh, freaking Islanders again!" Just like both teams, if they won that game, I could sit there and say, "All right, they played well enough to, in overtime to win." So, but look, it's a series, and I think that the Bruins beat the Capitals in five. You had a couple of rinks that were barely, you know, had any fans. I think the Islanders weren't really. I mean, um, the Capitals weren't engaged like like the Islanders are, like Scott said. So I just think that. It makes it fun. You're gonna you have two passionate fan bases, both with legitimate reasons to cheer and think that their team is gonna win. And from a hockey fan's perspective, this is great. Like you don't want to just see sweeps and, and and sure things. You want that angst and that 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 seed of doubt. And I think that you want also you really do want that challenge because it, if you do get through the Islanders, it just makes you a stronger team. Like I was telling Scott before, I think the Avalanche have a pretty much of a, a cakewalk of a path. I think they the Blues sucked. I think they'll get through Vegas in probably five or six. And then that North Division, the Jets or the Canadians, are literally, it, it's not even fair. So I think that... They may have to institute a mercy rule for that series. You, <laughs> it, it, you I mean, they just they just, they just, just dummied the Knights 7-1. And you can say what you want about how they played seven against the Wild, whatever. I mean, the Avalanche are the real deal. And if the Bruins are able to get to the Islanders, you're likely getting Tampa. And so it just makes the battle test. I do think there's merit to that. So... Any closing thoughts before we go? 
Nope. Are you sure? I'm sure. Yeah, I'm good. <laughs> All right. Shout, shout out to Bridget for making us T-shirts. Oh yeah. There oh, you go. Thank you. Yes, I. I made it with my cricket guys i'm a crafty person so bridget bridget uh made skate pod t-shirts custom skate pod t-shirts she embroidered them herself uh herself not there's not two bridgets there's one bridget um she made well, i don't know we don't know what kind of t-shirt shop she's got going on <laughs> there's actually 70 clones of me just pumping out t-shirts <laughs> yeah i feel like you just like had nick nick lapan do all the embroidering hey nick we need two t-shirts made all right sure thing um, so we'll so we'll we'll probably put out a link on on the skate pod with these t-shirts and we'll probably charge like buck fifty per. Um, all <laughs> proceeds. Bridge is gonna be hard at work. All, <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna have to quit this job. <laughs> all proceeds will go um, directly to to Scott. To um, the skate pod. <laughs> the Scott McLaughlin to, fund. To the skate pod going out for beers after. Yeah, yeah. Um, but anyway, so. Yeah, go follow the skate pod on Twitter, Bridget Scott. Follow their coverage and mine. I guess I'll plug myself too, but I don't like doing that. Um, throughout the throughout the series and the playoffs, and I guess maybe depending on the schedule, we'll maybe we'll do one more podcast for the series depending on how deep it goes. Yeah, I think especially if it gets through because Game Five would be Saturday. Like, you know, if if it's still going after that, like that's a perfect time to do between. You know, start of the new week after game five, going to game six. Great. Well, thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you guys soon. Mm-hmm.